Uh, Gracious and Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for this uh, day, and we give you great thanks for uh, the gospel, and uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the peace that it brings to our lives. Father, uh, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, thank you all for coming and uh, to uh, this breakout session, Ministering to Winners, uh, uh, the, the blind, the bound, and the broken, people like you and me. And uh, basically, uh, um, I'm, uh, I'm the, the, the clergyman in charge here of Calvary St. George's, but I've been in uh, ministry uh, since 1997. I started off as a youth minister in the Episcopal Diocese of Arizona, and then was a youth minister in uh, the uh, Episcopal Diocese of San Diego, and then uh, the bishop said, you've got to go to seminary, and so I went to seminary and uh, did ministry in Pittsburgh, and then I've been here in New York City for uh, seven years. And just a, a little bit a story about my own self um, and how I've kind of, and I'm still learning it every day. I think that's what St. Paul means when he talks about the renewing of your mind. It's not like all of the great things you're going to do for God this day, but it's constantly renewing my mind that um, I actually need the grace of God to carry me through. Um, as a, a great theologian, Rod Rosenblatt, is famous for saying, I hit record. Okay. We're, all, uh, yeah, we're all born lawyers. We need to be taught the gospel. And uh, I think this is, the, this is the whole thing. And really, I didn't understand the gospel until I had a nervous breakdown, basically, in seminary. And um, Mel got it before me. And I was really just furious by the whole thing. And uh, actually, there was a guy, J.D. Koch. Uh, we went to his house for dinner. And uh, the way that I began to, like, understand what this was all about is because I had this very, like, hard charging, and I had gotten off step one, and I was never going back to step one again. I was, like, on step 15, and I was in seminary, and I was the guy who was doing it. I was the guy who was doing it in life. I got up at 5.30 in the morning and did my own prayer time and, like, did my own devotion, and then I would begin to read because I was the guy in seminary who tried to read absolutely positively everything. And then I went to chapel for morning prayer. And I was holding it all together, but on the inside I was beginning to crack. And I remember one of the reasons why I was holding it together all the more tightly was because I had a professor stand up and say, Remember, gentlemen, uh, the greatest gift you can give your congregation is your holiness. And I, like, took that to heart. And I was, like, absolutely right. And so I was beginning to like break down. And so, and, and really, my story was the story of glory. The story of glory, like the wounded soul that was trying to escape and make his way back to God. You know, back to God. And I was bridging the gap. This was happening in seminary. And uh, we went to uh, JD, and, JD Coke and Liza Coke's house for dinner. And Mel and Liza hit it off. And I was there to like take JD on. I was going to, like, destroy him because J.D. was talking about the gospel in seminary, and if what he was saying was right, then everything I had been doing was completely wrong. And what happened was, is through the course of the evening, like, the double-barrel bottles of wine started to come out, and we're talking theology as you do in seminary, and my teeth are totally purple, and uh, they've been imputed purple. And uh, I was standing, and, like, we'd come to this kind of, like, if you will, like a standoff, a theological standoff. Me and all of my John Wesley do it glory, and him and like the Reformation, right there. And what happened was, is that he had a porch, and I leaned on the porch and fell off. And it was the time when they were fertilizing their garden, and so I fell literally right into a pile of crap. 
And uh, it was in my ears and everything. And uh, JD started to laugh at me. And he said, hey, do you need another glass of wine? And I said, no, I need to go home. I need to go home. And I was like wrecked right there. And I was like, I'm back at square one here in seminary. I couldn't hold it together. And uh, I remember I walked home, and I'm just covered in manure, literally. And I took, began, I got into the house, and Mel can test this because she cleaned it up. Uh, <laughs> not really. But I took my clothes off there, right like in the living room. And uh, the manured clothes, and I took a shower. And it was in this shower, it was almost like a baptism, like a, like a second baptism. Like the water's coming over my head, and I'm thinking about all of this stuff, and like, what am I doing? Like, I can't do this, God. And I remember I, like, walked out, and I was clean. I was clean. And there were my muddy clothes, covered in manure, right there on the floor. And I knew that I was going to go back and put those muddy clothes back on. I was going to put them back on. And it clicked. It clicked at that moment in this weird kind of way, with these muddy clothes on the floor. That's oftentimes what the Christian life is about. It's the muddy clothes and the clean person at the same time. And these two people, it's not like half dirty, half clean. It's fully dirty and fully clean at the same time. And this, like, it just was like, an, like almost like it strangely warmed my heart, to quote Wesley. And so today, I really want to talk about this thing called... Um, uh, the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. And this is what it's all about, ministering to people. You know, the first world that we live in, most of the time, is a total fantasy. And then there's the second world that we live in, which is a reality. And the fantasy is, is that I'm in partnership with God. I'm in partnership with God. I'm his co-pilot or whatever. Maybe I'm driving and he's there with me. I'm making a difference the fantasy is, is that I'm standing on my own two feet. I see clearly around me. And this fantasy is called the glory story. And New York City is littered with people who have been destroyed by it. Destroyed by it. That's the fantasy. The reality is, is that the world continues to be the world, as we've all seen this week. I mean, gosh. The reality is, is I too, even as a minister of the gospel... I'm a broken individual in total need. I'm blind. And so therefore what I need is a word, a word of promise. The reality is, is what's called the theology of the cross. Crux sola nostra theologica. The cross is our theology. So I want to talk about this. I want to talk about one, what's the glory story? The modus operandi of most people. And why it's cruel. And then two... When the glory story begins to break apart, what are the three things people typically do to perpetuate it? And I've taken it from this book by Adolf Koberle called The Quest for Holiness. And then three, who are we actually? According to this famous sermon by Jesus, who are we actually? And why is the cross alone our theology? And after that, maybe if there's time, we'll just, you know, we can talk and, and ask some questions or whatever. But the theology of glory, the glory story, as it's affectionately called, is the story of humanity's return to God. As Gerhard Forde so astutely puts it, he says the story of the exiled soul's return to God, 
us climbing the spiritual ladder to be with God in order to be like him. A glory story is identifiable because uh, you begin to ask yourself in this story, who is the protagonist? Who is the protagonist in this story? Is it the creature or is it God? This should all give you, begin to give you some questions to think about, especially those of you where contemporary Christian music is your primary like, mode of worship. Begin to ask yourself, who's the protagonist in this song? Is it me and my girlfriend God? Or is it God himself acting upon me? One sees this theology everywhere you look because it is the natural theology of humanity. It sees God at work in what we define as good and absent in what we define as bad. For example, you see it in Eastern and New Age thought with the idea of the reincarnation. The lost soul, through a number of lifetimes, finally purges itself of all desire and suffering because suffering is bad. Suffering is bad and breaks free of this world to enter into the new nirvana or the collective nothingness. You see this in, in, in the other Abrahamic religions. This is why they're often defined by orthopraxy as opposed to orthodoxy. You used by means of the law to make your way back to God. But at the end of the day, ask yourself, who is the active agent? Is it the creature or is it the creator? And the theology of glory has, uh, has co-opted the biblical story as well. Much of us have been raised in it. Much of us have been raised in it, whether it's liberal or conservative. We've been raised in this theology of glory. The glory story, dressed like a Christian, typically says that the fall was bad. Oh, got it. The fall was bad, but not so bad that it ultimately cannot be fixed by you with a little help from your friend Jesus. The cross then becomes a means to an end. I mean, not a means, yeah, it becomes a means to an end. It becomes a a door that we enter in order to make our return to God possible. You see how even subtle the glory story is when it takes on a Christian veneer. And the return to God is possible when we make ourselves available to God. You know, maybe you've heard someone say, open yourself up to the Lord, you know, Open your, press in, press into God. You know, these stories. Because behold, God's a gentleman, and he's not going to force himself on you. I mean, good God, I need him to kick down the door and save me. That's what I need. I don't need a gentleman. I need a savior. All we have to do is press in a little more. All we have to do is seek him out. All we have to do is make the kingdom of God in the here and the now. The theology of glory in the Christian faith sees the gospel ultimately as what gets you saved. And then it's the other things like various disciplines that take you forward in the Christian life. Move you from point A on to point B, point C, point D. The Christian life, when it's co-opted by the glory story, leads eventually to compartmentalization. You know, with lists of do's and lists of don'ts. Whatever it is, people to vote for, people not to vote for. And sermons become calls for you to try. Get involved. Live a better and higher life. Whatever that may be. And because the glory story is all about getting better on the here and the now, I encourage everybody who loves the glory story to just read the book of Revelation. It ends bad until God comes in and saves it. 
He enters in and saves us. Because the glory story is all about getting better, the glory story cruelly invites its practitioners to make distinctions between carnal Christians and mature Christians, liberal Christians and fundamentalists, calling us to constantly look inward. And the reformers called this in Latin, incurvitas scene. We're always looking inward. We're navel-gazing. And this is my first point. A theology of glory ultimately has the creature, has you as the protagonist. And it's all about inviting God into your story, God into our lives. And it's deceptive because it makes God passive. And humanity in this great story, the active agent. And when we're the active agent, here's the cruel thing, is that we're always busy focused on what other people are doing. As if God is up in heaven just waiting for us to ascend to him. You know, there you are. Wow. And we're always busy worried about what other... I saw this in myself all the time when I was a youth minister. We'd have like in the fall these big cleanup days where we're going to clean the youth house. And uh, one of my partners in youth ministry uh, never showed up at 7 in the morning. But he definitely showed up for game time and for like the pizza party afterwards. And he did this every time. He did this every time. See, I was concerned about what he was doing because I didn't want to be there at 7 in the morning. I wanted to be in bed too. You know, I just wanted to come to the pizza party. So, I mean, I mean, we'd be hauling these boxes and bags of trash, and I was just like, I wish something would fall on this guy in his bed when he'd show up, you know what I mean? It all became about what I was doing and what other people were doing. And this guy wasn't really a minister because he wasn't really laying his life down for these kids. It put me in the, in the seat of the judge. A theologian of glory fails to realize that God is God, and we are his creatures, We are his creatures, and therefore, unbeknownst to us, when we're in this glory story, we're constantly committing the sin of our first father, Adam. You know, we're like chips off the old block. The sin of Adam wasn't eating the fruit. It was, he received the temptation that you will be like God. And this has been the problem ever since. We want to be like God. Even the most well-meaning Christians want to kick him out of his throne and say, I am there. I know what's right. I know what's right. A theology of glory then begins what it does, because if we have to be God, and we have to hold it all together, what begins to happen, and you see this in people's lives, I see it in my own, we begin to put blinders on us. You know, that won't allow us to see ourselves as the ultimate problem. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. Now, the glory story cloaked in Christianity, uh, it, it always breaks down. You know, we, it always breaks down. And you see the ugly head of the old Adam, like, rise up and show its face every once in a while. But because we're getting better, we've got to push it back down. We've got to beat it down with a stick. And so oftentimes the glory stories co-opted another word, another word, salvation. Uh, Salvation simply means one's entire being made right with God. And this usually occurs uh, when in some form or fashion we get a glimpse of who we actually are. Um, The reality in light of who we'd like to be, you know. To put it another way, we make oftentimes when we get this glimpse... This effort to bridge the gap between the sinfulness of humanity and the holiness of God. This is the glory story working itself out. 
And we try and bridge this gap. You see this in your lives, you are parishioners. You see this in your own life. Try and bridge this gap, generally speaking, in one of three ways. The first is moralism. Now, moralism, moralism consists of people leveraging their good works, their words, and their will to try and bring themselves closer to God. Somehow, God will see my good works and glorify me in heaven. The second way, and this tends to be my route, is through intellectualism. If I simply read enough about the Bible and theology, my head is going to fill up with enough hot air that I will ascend to heaven and the Lord will finally see me, you know? I love that scene, I mean, I love that scene in Portlandia in the first episode, you know, and the hipsters are sitting around the coffee table talking about the different articles they've read, trying to one-up each other. That used to be me. I mean, well, no, used to be. It still is me. (laughs) Have you read Luther? Read it. Have you read Calvin? Read it. Did you read the latest by Rowan Williams? Didn't like the end, you know? That tends to be me. And, you know, and I noticed this with my own self and, and with when I began to understand the theology of the cross, when it began to seep into, like, every part of my being, I, like, turned it into a bludgeon. I turned it into a weapon, you know, and I would just pound the snot out of people with it. You know, you might not be, you don't know what you're talking about, law, law. You know, I would do that all the time. People were like, get away from me. You're the most ungracious person I've ever met. And so, but, you know, this becomes one of their routes, intellectualism, and I'm going to dazzle the Lord with all of my knowledge, and I'm going to dazzle you too. The third way we try to bridge the gap between who we are and who we want to be before God is through mysticism. We bridge the gap by trying to feel closer to Him, you know? And, and we try to ascend through spiritual routines. The notion was actually made, I mean, you know, and we all see it. We use our deeds, we use our thoughts, we use our spirituality to try and build that bridge to God. Get rid of who we are and become what we ought to be. But in actuality, we use these things. The glory story enables us to hide from God. You know, we make little fig leaves, little blinders to cover up ourselves. You know, we heard you walking in the garden and we were naked. Because heaven forbid, God actually know who I am. Heaven forbid. In Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, Jesus, um, or actually it's a little later than that, it's, um, uh, it's uh, 16 through uh, 19, uh, Jesus shows up to Nazareth and uh, you know, preaches a sermon. The hometown boy come back and he's going to get the floor. And uh, he reads from a passage quoting Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 2, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isn't it interesting how the glory story often says about us, in my life today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The prophet Isaiah, what he's doing here is he's giving us four very specific descriptions to illustrate who we are, and he pops the glory story's bubble. One, he says, We're poor. We are poor. 
I gave the same sermon a couple of months ago. Um, and somebody came up to me and they said, How dare you say that you were poor? Your church is in Gramercy Park, one of the richest neighborhoods in the world. Where do you get off saying you were poor? She made a very good point. The concern's justifiable. Where do we get off identifying ourselves as the poor? Well, what Isaiah, and consequently Jesus, means here is not simply socioeconomic. This is a description of the spiritual condition of every human being. A condition that is not self-reliant or self-sufficient, but instead recognizes that on our own we possess a spiritual bankruptcy. In other words, if you know who you actually are behind closed doors, when you know who you are when no one else is looking, you know what's running through your head and all you can text is OMG. You know, and the truth is, is we don't want anybody to know that part of us, the poverty of our souls. The second description that he drops that pops the glory story is probably the most controversial. We are captives. And this is controversial because most people, as a given, especially in our country, think that we're free and have free will. This is where Mockingbird gets offensive. You know, they said I didn't have free will. No. The theology of glory teaches us this, not the theology of the cross. We are not free. We are prisoners. We are captives. And the prophet Jesus St. Paul and the entire Christian faith makes this claim that we are unfree, that everything including our wills are held captive. Now let me be clear, when I say we are captives, I'm not talking about determinism, and I'm not talking about being a robot. The notion of captivity is the truth that no matter how hard we try, we are held captive to things outside of ourselves that we have no control over, like addictions, Nobody wakes up and says, you know, today I'm going to be an alcoholic. Today I want to be a methadone addict. You know, that's what I've always wanted to do with my life. Nobody wakes up and says, today I'm choosing to do this. I'm choosing to have a mental condition like depression or anxiety. Some of us are captive to weight or underweight. Whatever it is, there are some things in life where the notion of choice is actually cruel because there was no choice in the matter at all. We are captives. The third description of humanity is is that we are blind, popping the glory story. This is embodied in the phrase, and we say it all the time, hindsight is 20-20. Who hasn't ever said to themselves, my God, how could I have been so blind? Why didn't I see this all along? You couldn't see it, because right from the beginning, our condition is blindness. And left to our own devices, we are in darkness. Just think about how many decisions you've made that you still haven't seen the repercussions for, especially your good deeds. Just think about that, because this, the cross is an an attack, especially on your good deeds. The fourth description of humanity is very similar to the second, that we are oppressed. Humanity, while a victimizer, is also a victim of forces beyond our control. You were born that way. Your parents divorced when you were seven. Your father was an alcoholic. You got really sick. You know, and, and there was nothing you could do about it. Your boss just doesn't like you. 
You know, you wore Dracard the first day of work and he hated it and he's hated you ever since. I love how the timeless wisdom of Calvin and Hobbes, and this was up on the Mockingbird site a while ago, puts it, Calvin looks at Hobbes and cheerfully says, my family is dysfunctional and my parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. <laughs> he goes on to say, my behavior is addictive, functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept responsibility for my actions. <laughs> Calvin concludes by saying, I love this culture of victimhood. The point being here is that there are some things in life that just aren't fair. My daughter and I had that conversation today. Some things are just not fair. And those things that are unfair oftentimes shape us and have made us who we are. The prophet Isaiah here, he busts the glory story. And he describes humanity as being downtrodden in an impossible impasse. Humanity. You know, it's easy to say, well, those are the, that's fine for the people over there, but me, I don't see it. Physician, heal thyself. Yet this is my second point, I don't know. <laughs> Just going on here. What makes this profound is that when you grasp the passage's profundity is when you begin to see it as yourself. You stop attributing the descriptions to people over there and begin to see yourself as you are. Poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. And this is my second point. This is the beginning of all wisdom as a Christian. When you can understand yourself as you are, as one in need, especially before God, And you begin to see that it's not about you grasping onto God, but that he has grasped onto you completely. And you begin to see that he, in that cross, and that cross alone, you know, that cross alone, not like whether things are going good, it's oftentimes the worst thing that can happen to you. But in the cross alone, God has given you all good things. He's given you his grace. He's given you his mercy. And most importantly, he's given you his righteousness so that you can stand justified before a God, a holy God. This is the beginning of the theology of the cross. A theology of the cross, as the prophet Isaiah does, literally smacks the blinders off of our face. And before the cross exposes us all as the fallen sinful creatures that we are, and being brought to the cross, we realize that it is in our good deeds It's our good deeds that got Jesus nailed to the cross. I mean, these people were trying to save their religion. Rome was trying to keep order in the area. Do you think anybody nailing Jesus to the cross thought they were doing a bad thing in the moment? No, not at all. This was a good deed. And being brought to the cross, we realize that it is our good deeds, our political systems, our religion, that nails Jesus to the cross, our piety that nailed Jesus to the cross. So therefore, in terms of righteousness, we have actually no idea on our own what good and evil actually is. As Forde says, the cross insists on being its own story. It does not allow us to stand by and watch. It does not ask us to probe endlessly from meaning behind, above everything, that would finally awaken, enlighten, and attract 
the exiled slumbering soul? No, not at all. Instead, the cross draws us into itself. So we become participants. Uh, not participants, we become the... Uh, uh, Christ is the participant, the, the, I don't know what I was saying there, but we're drawn into this story. We're not participants. You're dead until you're brought alive by the Spirit. As Paul, but this then, the cross, this is what I'm trying to say, the cross then becomes our only story. As St. Paul says in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, the theology of the cross works itself out in Christianity. It, doesn't work, it works itself out primarily in hearing this message. The preaching of sin, the preaching of grace. And it's this word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that produces the sanctification and justification in the life of every Christian. And repentance is seen as sorrow for sin, however, through preaching this message of forgiveness, one is reminded of Christ's work for them on the cross. And you're brought to the point of salvation once again every day. Therefore, let me just begin to wrap this up. The theology of the cross, when it's taught, you begin to see you never move past the cross. The cross is the end. And good works are the fruit of faith in Jesus for your parishioners, the people you're ministering, even yourself. And the testimony of the Christian is not like I took the Jesus challenge, I used to be like this and now I'm like this. (laughs) The testimony of the Christian is on the work of Christ in history for us. See the testimony of the apostles. You know, it's not like Peter's, I mean, you know, he's always like this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him Lord of all things. Testimony, the sermons in a church where the cross is preached, leads one to rejoice in the forgiveness because of Christ. No one's getting better. Rather, you are given a growing awareness of your sinfulness, which produces a growing appreciation for Christ's work. The cross, then, is our story, turning us away from ourselves, forsaking our own good works, our own spiritual experiences, and clinging only to Christ's blood and his righteousness. And as this begins to open our hearts and our ears to the message of the cross then we begin to see that the cross is God's, where God storms the last bastion of the self, the last presumption that you were going to do something for him. And this word of salvation when spoken from the cross, spoken to you as you are, not as you like to be, salvation is God's work for you. And because this ministry, this ministry of Understanding the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross, it does something to us. What it does is it begins to let us be free as we actually are. Not have to hide anything. It allows us to, to confess and be repentant people. And it gives us the ability to see the truth about ourselves and God. And when you see that he doesn't have the sort of Damocles hanging over your head anymore, but has removed it, it enables us to see others as they are. Bound. And I'll wrap up with this. We begin to see Isaiah's description of humanity and God's as actually right. Not the glory story, we're morally neutral, but that we're blind, we're bound, we're captive, we're prisoners. You begin to see that as, as right. 
and that it has been actually fulfilled in Christ. I love the shortest sermon ever. Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In Jesus. Then you'll begin to understand that people are not as free as they think they are. And neither are you. And you might also be able to have compassion on them. Graciously reach out to them. Graciously lead them to the one, not in your deeds and all the great things you've done, but graciously lead them to the one in whom all the promises of God have been fulfilled. Jesus Christ, fulfilled for you, fulfilled for me, and ultimately fulfilled for the whole world. And uh, that is the distinction. And um, that's all i got to say. And so um, maybe we'll open it up for some questions or thoughts, and, uh, um, and I'll take them on if you... Good. Jeremy. Yeah, well, when you begin to see yourself as the blind, the broken, the oppressed, you begin to realize that you've got no place at the banquet table. You don't belong there. But rather, ultimately, and this is the point of that parable, is that a gracious host invites you. And because he has made you his son by the perfect work of Jesus Christ, his blood shed, imputed, and given to you, that righteousness, he calls you a son. And from the end... Not even at the t- outside the room where you do not belong, you receive the gracious invitation of a king and are invited to the right hand of the table where you belong as a son and daughter of the king here and now and in the age to come. That wasn't set up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Remind me your name again. Jim. Jim. I've got a question for you. Okay. Hmm. 
Um, well, that's so. If you could s sum up what you want to say, like in just one sentence, and I'll address that. What would it be? Um, I would say yes. We are passive slaves to habitual sin. Uh, and this is because sin is um, the very, it's not just simply the actions that I do, it's the very state that I'm in. It's the very state that I'm in. And oftentimes, especially now, there, and, and, and because it's the state that I'm in, it's fallen and it's not right. And so some of these addictions are deeply within. And there are other addictions that I oftentimes choose. You know what I mean? I, I don't deny that. And that's once again a sign of my bound will all the more. For oftentimes, sometimes the addictions that I choose are not, actually, they're not actually the root of the problem. They are, they, are, they are the fruit of something deeper going on, which also, and I would say that the power of the, so that is coming from within. And me, oftentimes, sometimes the addictions that I choose, you know, are me trying to cope somehow and put that fig leaf on to cover up a deeper wound, and I may not even know what that wound is, but I am saying that um, objectively, and whether you get out of that addiction that you've chosen or not, the promises of God and that blood that covers even that addiction is for you, and has the power ultimately to deliver you from it, because it will deliver you from the clutches of death, where we're all actually going to go. And that is the ultimate promise of the Christian faith. It's not so much about my best life now and getting better. Ultimately, the promise of the gospel is, is that death isn't going to hold you in the grave. It's not going to hold And so the ultimate thing where all of these addictions are leading to, death, um, I will be plucked out and saved from that. And so I would say, yes. Yeah. Good. Can I throw out an illustration? Throw it out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from Bo Deer's book, The Hammer of God, um, Preacher's Carries. Everybody reads it, it's wonderful. Um, one of the characters is explaining this concept to somebody else, and, and he says, when you become a Christian, it's almost like the garden, you, 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 your eyes are open to the garden of your heart, if you will, and you see rocks all around and weeds all in those garden rocks that are your sin, metaphorical sins. And some of those rocks, you know, can take these rocks out and you can place them on the outside of the garden. Mm -hmm. Your heart throw them out. And that's good, that's, that's fine. But eventually you come to a bedrock. Yeah. You see this bedrock and, and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. And it's at that point when we realize that bedrock sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. That's right. It's taken care of. That's right. Uh, that, is, that is such a beautiful illustration. And if you've never read Bo Geertz's Hammer of God, you really, especially if you're a minister, you should read it. Uh, there's a powerful scene, too, in addressing the heart. And this is a big thing of the theology of glory. Is I've given my heart to Jesus. And there's this scene where this young curate has been like touched by a revival, and he's speaking to the rector, and he says, I've given my heart to Jesus, sir. And the rector looks at him and says, um, as if that was a gift to have ever given him. <laughs> and he's, you know, he says, uh, the truth is, is that your heart is a tin can on a pile heap of trash. And he was like, nobody chooses a savior, but rather a loving savior comes and finds that tin can and grabs it with his wounded hands 
and makes it something worth loving. And he says, he says, it's the Savior of ultimately that takes the heart, not us giving it to him. He says, these are two distinct religions. But one, when it finally fails, leads to the other. Eric. Uh, Eric was, you know, um, look, yeah, I mean, I agree with all this because, like, if it's not true, I'm At my point in life, so after having had a very long tenure at church, and like I can sort of see that I'm back down the road, and I, I, I find, I, I love that, I, I guess it came from the back of the room, but was the passive, passive slave to habitual addiction? Habitual sin, whatever. Yeah. That, I mean, that's so like, wow, that's really, I basically see in myself everything I ever didn't like about every minister that I basically liked, but didn't like something about that. Hmm. And I got this compilation of all the like little things. Like and, and I also really do believe it is not actually going to get cured. Hmm. Um, just not. Like, I mean, like, first of all, we don't live long enough. Like, we just don't live long um, So, So basically, I'm in the tank with this whole, like, you know, sharing story. Um, but we've talked a little bit, and I never get to the, get to the answer. Where is there, is, there is some appropriate, I think, I hope, I, I wonder, there is some appropriate dynamic of perceiving Christ's victory in you by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit that um, I mean, I still lean on, 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 on like John and other, like when you heard Jesus through the Holy Spirit, you know, that, that there, there's an operation sure. that shows you that that is how it really is, but that God is doing something. And, you know, how do you not, can you, have I said enough to get you to quite started? Well, I'm not quite sure what the question is. Right, the question is, what am I looking for in my life? Um, to, uh, to get in touch with when Paul is talking about fruits and still. What, what am I looking for to have an appropriate, yeah. uh, uh, an appropriate, uh, uh, so how do I know it's working? Of, of the gifts of the Spirit, sure. of the fruit of the Spirit. How, sure. how, how do I relate to the fruit of the Spirit? Well, you know, that's, that's very powerful, and I love how Paul puts it, and I would say uh, most of the time we want to read that because we're so desperate for this glory. I mean, I, I, I am like 24-7, I'm jumping into this glory story all the time, and so I read that as definite prescription, and I turn myself into a fruit counter immediately, you know, and I'm looking for fruit on my life, and I'm looking for fruit in your life. Uh, the, the theology of the cross sees this as description. And I believe this is true. I grew up in the desert southwest of Arizona. And uh, in the back of my house was a tree. And we went back there one day when we first moved there. And Yuma and my dad said, it's all these little green fruit. And he goes, son, look, it's a lime tree. And we're going to have key lime pie for the rest of our life. It was really exciting. We had labeled that a lime tree. And, uh, and guess what? A couple months later, it grew oranges. It grew oranges. And that tree never said to us one year, like this, you know, Smiths, this is going to be the year 
of the harvest. Never did. Uh, the truth, in, in some years, though that tree produced amazing fruit. The conditions were just right in life. And things were produced. Sometimes in the desert southwest, we had a really cold winter, which would kill all the fruit. It didn't change the fact that it was an orange tree. Um, and, uh, and some years, we have a really hot summer, and we didn't water the tree, and we didn't have any fruit. It didn't change the fact that it was an orange tree. And here's the thing, is that I think we're so busy trying to like, look and produce for fruit that we miss and the one who is actually producing it in our life by the power of the Holy Spirit. As St. Paul says, this cross brings us into that story and allows it to be the story alone. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live by the power of the Spirit working through me. And so it's the Spirit that produces fruit. And sometimes, man, it may seem dry. And there isn't much fruit. And sometimes it may seem perfect. And gosh, wow, I'm just living my best life now. Uh, but there... Regardless, I want you to know, Eric, and I want everybody here in this room to know that uh, there are these plentiful, beautiful fruit trees in this room. And then the fact that you are here is a sign of fruit. The fact that you will go back to your churches and preach this message is a sign of fruit. The fact that you will fail miserably and come and call on Christ on your knees is a sign of fruit. This is fruit. And, and and we're always busy so counting it, but just let it be, and you're free to be, and trust that the Spirit is working through you by the power of Christ in your life and producing the fruit, the good works which he has prepared for you to walk in. And so that's what I would say. I would say avoid being a fruit counter and just, uh, and just be. And know that, man, by virtue of what Christ has done for you, you are a fruit tree bearing great fruit, even though you may not see it. <clears throat> okay. Here we are, uh, we'll go uh, for, we'll take a couple more questions and we'll go, okay, we'll go all the way around like that and then you're the last one. Okay, yeah, good. Um, so I'm finishing seminary and I feel like uh, a lot of what we get sometimes is the theology of glory. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why that doesn't work in ministry, like what it looks like when we interact with prisoners, like where, <clears throat> Well, listen, it, uh, the truth is, is the theology of the cross, more often than not, isn't going to work in your ministry. Like, I mean, it's like, it's, that's going to kill you. That's going to empty your church out because everybody's going to be like, what the F? Like, you just told me, I like, what? Like, I, you know, and so, uh, like, that is ultimately, like, theology, I mean, Jesus, good grief. He says, unless he's preaching the theology of the cross, his whole ministry is the theology of the cross, and he gets into a little bit of sacramentology, and he says, lest you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life within you. And immediately, everybody's like, forget this. This is a hard teaching, you know? And the truth is, is that the theology of glory oftentimes will make your church pop. You know, it will explode it. Because, man, you're like just eating it up, and like, man, we're given stuff to do. And like, and, and we're given stuff to do, and we're doing it, and we're doing it, and we're doing it, and we're gorging ourselves on doing it for the Lord, and things are growing. But this ultimately leads to like nervous breakdowns. I mean, and the truth is, and it may not. I mean, you may have a wonderful, wonderful ministry of having a theology of glory, but the truth is, is that there'll be a lot of people on that fruit tree that have compartmentalized their lives. And they're never going to talk to you about what's really going on in their life, their sick child, their addictions, because they're just because you're so perfect. 
because you're not being you. And, uh, and so you'll have probably a wonderful ministry, and it works, a theology of glory. But the truth is, is that it's kind of like, and I've used this description before, and some of you who go to my church, you may have heard this. I kind of describe it the way the Eskimos hunt for wolves. And what they do is they pull out these big knives and they dip it in blood. And then they let it freeze and they stick it out by their pins. And the wolves come and they see the, um, and the wolves are us with the theology of glory. And they see that knife, they, don't, they smell the blood and they ignore the sheep because this is the free meal. Or the animals that they're eating. And they begin to lick the knife. And, they begin, and soon that blood begins to melt and they nick themselves. They're so busy, like, licking this cell that they drown themselves in their own blood. Their own blood. You know, and this is the truth. Is we, just give me more, give me more, give me deeper teaching. What do we got to do next? And actually, a theology of glory, if you're a pastor, is ultimately like a recipe for kind of burnout. And I mean, a recipe ultimately for exhaustion. Because you just, I mean, in theology is a cross. You got to carry enough. You know, you throw it to Jesus. You know, but you're a theologian of glory, so you're grabbing it all the time. But like, I mean, it just crushes you. And so I would say, they te- people teach it because it works. It works. Theology of the cross isn't practical at all. And so it works. And uh, the theology of the cross is going to attract some strange folks to your church and people who really need it. And, uh, and you know, call you at, show up at your house and like knock on your door at two in the morning. I need to see you. And this is like, and there you are. You like given to yourself to it. You have like. God so loved the world and you love it too because this is the call of the Lord and the, and the spirit working through your life so I think they teach it because it works but that's not necessarily true uh, next Father Matthew um, I'm thinking a lot about what you just said and uh, I'm also thinking about these events and we are you know a theology of the cross versus a theology of glory yeah. uh, how difficult it is in a world where so many you're, you're talking about bursting the glory bubble. Mm-hmm. The peace pillar used to have their glory bubble burst by their enemies. Mm-hmm. By people who don't like them, by their rivals, by terrorists. You mm-hmm. know, two towers to tear them down. Oh my you gosh. Have a marathon where we're at the pinnacle of our health and glory, and it's ruined by a, a minimalist or an enemy. Yeah. So, how do you assure people in that context you know, where they. When their glory bubbles are being burst by people who are not of God, and then you come along bursting the glory bubble, how do you assure them? How do you help them to distinguish? Ah, well, this is great. That is a great question, and um, and I think this is where pastoral theology comes in. Uh, The first thing you don't go in and say anything. Uh, It begins by just going in, and they have been destroyed. Life has destroyed them. The reality of being bound broken and blind and what other people who don't want to be bound, broken and blind do to each other to get control. You know what I mean? And uh, we hurt each other. We do. And so pastorally, the first thing you do is you just go in and listen. And you're present. And eventually these conversations begin to emerge. And, uh, and then, I mean, I guess the shorthand because we've got to get around all the room. But I think you begin to assure them that even in this, God is present because of the cross. You can assure them that God, like, didn't uh, escape torment and torture and the darkness of humanity, but actually entered into it and actually, and I love that about Sally Lloyd-Jones, died. He died. But he rose again. And that resurrection is ultimately the sign that this will not have the final say. 
But even this too shall be made right. And that resurrection is the first fruits, as St. Paul says, that all things are being made right. And that even in the midst of this, God is working, working through all things for the good for those who love Christ Jesus. But you'd never walk into the hospital room and say that. Let me tell you something. You go in and you listen. And you're present. You're present and you deliver the gospel and word and sacrament until those moments come up. And they will come. And so, especially as they begin to grieve, grasp for the glory again. Okay, we've come and then right there and then right there and now. Yeah. And what do you recommend for maintaining that stance that you uh, Living outside of myself? Living in Christ. Living away from himself and wants to be doing and succeeding and, and fearful and. Uh, you are. To live in this idea that Christ has done everything. Yeah. You know, I think, I think, you know, one of the powerful things about St. Paul is, like, towards the end of his life, he puts it like, you know, I've really figured it out. You know, he writes, I am the, the chief of sinners. And, like, I mean, this is, like, ultimately life, and this is the beginning of all wisdom. You realize that life begins and ends on your knees, and that you're always trying to get back up. Like, that's, like, I need to justify, I'm born a lawyer. I need to be reminded, and I need to hear the gospel. And this is the powerful thing about the gospel. It's a message that's heard. It's a message that's heard. You notice, like, God doesn't say, See, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Um, you know, let him who has ears, let him see. No, he says, let him who has ears, let him hear. And this is because this is something that, like, I mean, and this is where faith comes in. Because all around me is saying, like, man, get up! Get up! You know, and like, everything around me is saying, like, what did you do? You know, the law is just executed, killing. You get up, get up. And I need to hear, you failed again. You failed again. God, what kind of dad are you? You know, what kind of husband are you? What kind of pastor? Like, you hear this, like, in this acute, and the world is telling you this. Like, everything, all, like, all evidence to the contrary says that I am a justified person before God. And this is why I need to hear it. And it's by hearing that comes faith. And then, which then enables me, I mean, just, you know, there it is. You need to hear the gospel. You need to receive the gospel. And this, by God's grace, the power of the Holy Spirit will carry you through life. And it will, and it is. That's the good news. You are in Christ. You've been covered and forgiven. And, uh, and as a minister of the gospel, I have all authority to say that. And so, in Jesus' name, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will crush you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to the end that all who believe in him shall
shall not perish but have eternal life. This is a true saying worthy of all people to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if any person sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he's not only the perfect offering for our sins, for the sins of the whole world. And it's upon those gospel promises and those promises alone that I say to you with complete confidence, the peace of the Lord be always with you. There it is. Last question. Ask a question for a minute. You've got to be big. Just more an observation. You're so right that the Lord's story drives us to build the dashboard. We look at the ages. We see what we're doing. And yet, reconcile reality with the object cross. If there's a connection, I think there is, to how Luther started in that practice, which is that God will be entire life to lead to be one of repentance. So he kind of outlined. We say the Lord be with you, and the response is also and also with you. So, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we give you uh, great thanks for this day, and we give you great thanks once again for your gospel. Pray, Father, where uh, uh, I was in error in any way that you would gently correct that, and where uh, we're right by your grace through that Holy Spirit, you would only strengthen us, and that those words, the words of the gospel, would create faith in our hearts. Clean only to you and your righteousness. We ask, Father, that you would bless the food to our bodies and us to thy service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lunch is served downstairs.